Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Because we got the alternative energy right. free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show, recorded and produced on Ghana and Wurundjeri land for 3CR Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. My name's Mara. This week we'll hear about the Black Mist Burnt Country Art Exhibition and Symposium. The symposium was held on Saturday the 9th of September in Adelaide. It shed light on South Australia's nuclear history and related environmental and social effects, ranging from the British atomic bomb tests at Maralinga in the 50s and 60s to the effects of uranium mining and recent proposals to store nuclear waste in South Australia near Hawker and Kimber. The symposium explored how artists have reflected on nuclear issues through their practice and gave a voice to affected communities. Artists, nuclear campaigners and community members were presented on current developments in regard to the proposed nuclear waste dump in SA. Among the speakers were artist Jesse Boylan, artist Marilyn Fairsky, Paul Brown, producer, nuclear campaigner David Noonan, Jim Green from Friends of the Earth, anti-nuclear activist Karina Lester, Nobel Peace Prize laureate from ICANN Tillman Ruff, Greg Blannon from the Flinders Local Action Group and me, Mara Bonacci, in my role as nuclear waste campaigner at Conservation SA. I caught up with J.D. Mittman, who organised the symposium. My name is J.D. Mittman, a curator at Barringer Cultural Centre in Melbourne. And what is Barringer Cultural Centre? Um, you know, we're a you know, public gallery um, or multi-art um, um, space, if you like, um, on the outskirts of Melbourne in the Dandenong Ranges. Um, so we have an exhibition program, we have two performing arts, we have artist studios um, and all sorts of kind of community um, engagement and you've recently run a series of symposiums around a place called Black Mist Burnt Country. What was the motivation for that and what was it? Um, so Black Mist Burnt Country is a national touring exhibition that I have put together. It's been on the road, so to speak, since September 2016, marking the first uh, atomic test at Maralinga. Um, the exhibition was launched in Sydney and has since traveled through four um, states. Uh, it's currently on display at the National Museum in Canberra, um, and it focuses on the history of the British atomic tests in Australia through the works of art. Um, there's about 50 or so works by 30 or more um, Abor- uh, indigenous and non-indigenous artists from around Australia. Um, and that exhibition sort of provided the backdrop for a range of different public programs that um, go sort of alongside the exhibition. Um, And this symposium in Adelaide was a way of bringing together um, artists and other people that work in this space to kind of look at that history, but also um, not not just look at it sort of the atomic test sort of as something, you know, a history of the past, but also kind of look at what is going on and um, what is proposed for the state of um, South Australia in, in terms of um, you know, uranium mining and, and the proposed nuclear waste dumps. Now, I should probably mention that preceding the symposium in Adelaide, um, 
I have taken um, a group of artists from Melbourne and Sydney to Maralinga, um, even though artists have worked in that field and with the topic. Um, some, of some of them have never been to the site, so we had a quick um, um, road trip to Maralinga, and it seemed opportune um, and prudent um, on the way to stop over in Kimba and do the little detour um, to Hawker, if you like, um, to get the lie of the land in terms of what's proposed for the, um, you know, uh, the, the, you know what, what the proposals are for the nuclear waste dumps, what the lie of the land is, you know, what does the landscape look like, and of course um, to hear what the concerned citizens of Hawker and Kimber have to say about it. So you've really been covering the whole um, nuclear issue in South Australia over the last well, decades, really, from the atomic bomb testing all the way to the present day. What do you see are the links between art and the campaign for the environmental and social justice um, associated with the nuclear campaigns? Like Mistburn Country, um, the touring exhibition really shows that art is a great platform and a great medium to convey some of the stories that are connected to it, um, some of the narratives, um, some of the historical incidents and, and um, events. Um, people find it quite accessible. So what, what, what the experience of touring this exhibition shows um, is that not particularly a lot of people know about um, the history in much detail. But if you have, say, for example, um, Jonathan Kaminjara Brown, a member of the Soul Generations that, you know, returned to his lands and learned what happened, you know, learned about the atomic tests and took that on um, in his artwork, creative paintings on the subject matter, then that speaks in a different way, of course, to the audience than, say, other forms of, of information, you know, being a television documentary or books or, you know, what have you. And so here's a range of artworks and, um, coming together um, um, in form of painting, photography, sculpture, and each and every artist, indigenous or non-indigenous, uh, remote or urban, has, of course, their own kind of perspective on it. And that sort of makes it very accessible. Often, perhaps, um, the narrative is not immediately um, apparent, but, um, of course, what, what um, I have set out to do in the exhibition is to kind of weave these networks together as sort of... Uh, um, a tapestry, um, if you like, of, of the different stories. And in some instances, of course, they overlap. Um, so people can see, um, at, look at particular incidents or particular narratives from different perspectives. It's just fantastic having um, brought all those people together with all those different perspectives and spanning such a long and dark history. Um, I know that a lot of people that attended the Adelaide Symposium have said how fabulous, particularly the artists speaking were, and to get their perspectives and experiences. And so it was very well received at the Adelaide end. And so it's great that you brought it to um, Adelaide and other parts of the country. Um, I hope that the exhibition in Canberra goes really well and it's well received and brings a lot more attention to this, such a serious issue. Yeah, no, yeah, look, I mean, originally when, he's, when I set out with that, I mean, it seemed like a, a story of the past um, that, of course, has ongoing legacies when we mm -hmm. look at the environmental de damage, you know, the social implications, you know, the health, uh, the cultural, the health impacts, the cultural disconnect that um, um, the indigenous uh, communities there, and in particular, you know, the Bichinger and new people um, have experienced, and of course, you know, to the day they talk about this. 
Um, I, I might add, of course, that are also the Australian stories in, in this regard, not a unique story. I mean, you know, there were over 2,000 atomic tests in the world. Um, and what we see is, of course, that uh, in many instance, in instances, it's, it's, it's you know, the, the socially marginal, um, the ethnic minorities, the indigenous people, you know, that are somewhat the victims um, um, of, of these stories. Absolutely. But, um, but it's, of course, not a story of the past. And I tend to point that out, you know, to at public um, events or speak to people about the exhibition. Um, because besides, of course, these ongoing legacies, and you know, they'll be with us for, you know, some thousand years to come. Um, they also tell a story about how governments have gone about this in the past. Um, and, 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 of course, um, they also tell the story of, of the... Um, uh, say the indigenous people or you know some of the citizens being concerned on what is proposed now and um, I think it was really telling when we did the tour with the artists that we kind of learned um, you know much about you know what had happened to the land you know say how Marilinga had you know supposedly been cleaned up and how all that was done um, and you kind of you know wonder about you know um, if that was done in a way it was done you know, can can we trust you know a future government of any persuasion? If you, I might add, you know, mm -hmm. um, to to for example, you know, um, have a nuclear a national nuclear waste facility looked after properly, um, you know, uh, for the next hundred to a thousand years. And I think in a short, in a very short way of saying is um, no, we can't trust this at all. Uh, you know, this, this at all, and 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 that is of course certainly something, um, you know, that that needs to brought home in a way that that needs to be talked about more and in, in some ways of course here again you know that the exhibition you know creates sort of an access point for for you know raising the issue and having the debate about it mm, and it's bringing it to a different audience in a different format it's fabulous thank you so much for talking to the radioactive show today jd we really appreciate your time and the effort you put into putting this together it must have been a massive job <laughs> yeah yeah you could say that but um <laughs> No, thanks. That's, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Daisy. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We're learning about South Australia's nuclear past, present and future through recordings from the recent Black Mist Burnt Country Symposium in Adelaide. We just heard from JD Mittman, who organised the symposium. Next, we'll hear from artist Marilyn Fairsky. The recording was provided by Kim Mavramatis from Mav Media. As I was driving into Chernobyl um, on this bleak and wintry day and past all these houses that were sort of half buried under the snow and then mounds interspersed between them, um, which were in fact houses that had been covered with clay and which were buried under snow because it was in the dead of winter. Um, in an, and this is, these were the deserted villages that were now uninhabitable. And I had this sort of amazing sense of the people who weren't there, who used to be there and whose lives were really changed um, dramatically by this accident, but then the consequence of that over space and time for humans and the environment, it really is the same everywhere. And when we went to the waste sites, I mean, it was just confirmed. You know, I'm looking back in Australia, which is what's been so fantastic about this past week, because for me it's full circle. I've been all out there in the world and sort of now I'm seeing, my God, it's the, the story's the same, it's just the details are different. Of what is it that an artist can do 
when visiting these sort of sites. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, am I just a catastrophe junkie? Uh, because basically there is a whole industry around disaster sites and artists and filmmakers are not necessarily exempt from participating in that and the economy it generates. That was Marilyn Fairsky, an artist who spoke at the Black Mist Burnt Country Symposium. Next, we'll hear from environmental campaigner David Noonan. You're listening to The Radioactive Show. South Australia is very much the scene of the nuclear crime. Nuclear test sites never die. There are a number of le- and there are a number of lessons from Maralinga. The Australian government made agreements with the British to allow the British to drop atomic bombs on South Australia at Emu and at Maralinga. Um, part of the deal was that Australia got the technology for the Lucas Heights reactor. And now, 60 years later, it's predominantly that reactor's waste accumulated over time that's to be dumped back on South Australia. So nuclear things do come back to you, and typically always in very bad ways. And if I could make a minor comment, if Kimber was to get a, a, a radioactive waste dump, they certainly would need a doctor. Um, Australia's faced five nuclear waste storage agendas over the last 20 years. Four of them have been seen off by concerted community campaigning, uh, and those attempts have had to be abandoned by the proponents. We're now living through the fifth attempt. The typical response to the earliest uh, impositions, particularly Pangaea in WA, an international proposal that also had options on South Australia, and then Howard government's attempt to impose the uh, federal government nuclear waste dump here for five or six years, the typical response around Australia was the state and territory parliaments convened on the issue and prohibited those proposed actions. And it's really important that it was actually first by Liberal state premiers in WA in 1998, 99, and in South Australia in 2000, Liberal state premiers that took legislative measures to prohibit import, transport, storage and disposal of nuclear waste and the construction and the operation of... um, nuclear waste storage and disposal facilities. So it's not necessarily in any way limited to a left-right Labor, Green, um, Liberal Labor position. Uh, Pros and cons and and parties and alliances and disagreements split right across political parties in Australia on these issues. It then went on to be uh, state and territory Labor governments in SA Northern Territory and Queensland legislated against Howard's proposal, for instance. The current federal government uh, nuclear waste dump agenda, which I'll focus on, is really two dumps in one. The federal government liked to talk about low-level waste and the responsible disposal of that waste. Now, put that aside for a moment. Part of what they intend to do is to do that, but predominantly what they intend to do, in my view and experience, is to have uh, what's called a store, an above-ground storage facility to operate indefinitely, formally to operate for up to 100 years in the documentation from the Commonwealth. For the storage of nuclear fuel waste, that's irradiated nuclear fuel waste, not spent. They call it spent because they like to say it's innocuous. It's irradiated nuclear fuel waste and what they say is intermediate level waste, predominantly reactor waste, and intermediate level waste require uh, radiation shielding. These are wastes that the federal regulator says require isolation from the environment for a period of in the order of 10,000 years. So what I refer to later as an untenable fact is the intended indefinite above-ground storage of waste for perhaps 100 years, waste that require management and isolation for 10,000 years. Those comparisons do not add up and make sense of what is a claimed preference to bring and impose those wastes onto South Australia. It's also a waste dump agenda that the federal government claims is just a local issue. Now, the, the, the proof that it's not a local issue, the proof it's fundamentally a state issue, is in the state legislation passed by our parliament by successive Liberal and Labor state governments. Um, in, in them claiming that it's a local issue, they're claiming that 
Some local people, narrowly defined and excluding traditional owners largely, some local people should be allowed to say yes to a nuclear waste dump proposal. Um, I think it's the other way around. To be honest, local people have an absolute right to say no, but they do not have a right to say yes on everybody else's behalf. Um, in, in practice, and I'll move on to it, um, the so-called local dump agenda is now targeting uh, our South Australian port cities and the Spencer Gulf. It's now targeting communities across multiple radioactive waste transport routes, mm -hmm. from, from a proposed port site up to a dump site, from the Lucasites reactor right across Australia to, to a dump site. It's also an agenda not to manage an existing problem, which mm -hmm. is the way they like to speak about it, particularly in regard to the low-level waste. It's an agenda to double Australia's inventory of nuclear fuel waste and of intermediate-level waste that requires uh, radiation shielding and isolation for 10,000 years. It's also an agenda to expose South Australia to nuclear insecurity, to the threats and the risks inherent in nuclear accidents and to the potential for nuclear terrorism because mm -hmm. nuclear fuel waste, nuclear fuel waste transport and storage are inherently potential nuclear terrorist targets. Um, I'll briefly look at why, and the corollary to why is um, that the federal government has a formal contingency to retain, through extended storage, these key wastes at Lucas Heights. They actually built a new store at Lucas Heights in 2015. They designed and licensed the facility for over 40 years, and there's actually no time limit on the licence the federal regulator gave to the new facility. They have formal contingency in both assessment and approval documentation to retain those nuclear wastes there through the potential availability of a disposal option, which they acknowledge could be 30 to 50 to 100 years away. So there's no technical... Uh, or licensing or regulatory issue to be moving those nuclear waste from Lucas Heights to South Australia. At best, it's a policy preference. At worst, it's um, a design imposition to suit further expansion in Australia, including the, the next 40 years of the, the reactor operations, and to double our, our nuclear waste agenda, and potentially as an introduction to other matters that happens in parallel. It would certainly suit a range of other nuclear advocates here and elsewhere around the world if South Australia was to concur or to have imposed upon it a nuclear waste storage facility of the, in that design. So keep in mind why when we look through some of the issues of what's involved. We do have the protection of key legislation in South Australia, uh, passed initially by the State Liberal Party. And it does seek to protect um, matters that are really eloquently addressed in the objects to the Act. To, help the, to protect the health, safety and welfare of the people of South Australia and to protect the environment in which they live. They very much seeks to address all of the aims that community have in relation to the management of these issues and taking responsibility in these issues. That legislation um, seeks to protect community rights and interests, but the, the proposal for nuclear waste storage imposition seeks to compromise rights, interests and safety. And as we've heard, it's typically the rights and interests that are disproportionately affected of our fellow Indigenous Australians. And, and I've addressed what, what I consider to be an untenable fact, that at the core of the federal government agenda, putting aside what they do and what they like to talk about in regard to low-level waste, is this untenable contrast between indefinite above-ground storage for perhaps 100 years of waste that require isolation for 10,000 years. You wouldn't be bringing those unnecessary risks to South Australia if you're acting in a responsible manner for the public interest. If we can look at an example of what's involved, um, the federal government has solely targeted South Australia, solely looked at only postcodes that start with a five, 
for over two full years. And they knew that a core requirement of their relative waste storage plan was that they required to take the use of a South Australian port to bring in some of that waste. Um, but for those two full years, they, they minimised any understanding or comment about that, and they virtually left that out from all of their information material they'd been deluging local, material, uh, local communities with. Recently, and knowing that, I, that uh, they had to admit this at some point, the federal government issued a report to a website, published it to a website, and if you go to those documents, they're about 500-page site characterisation reports that our colleagues will be familiar with from the, from the regions. If you get to about 100 and page, page 177, they name the South Australian ports for the first time that they intend to target for potential use to bring in uh, nuclear waste. So they named Port Perry, Wyala and Port Lincoln, and they named Port Augusta as being along a number of proposed nuclear waste transport routes. What they neglected to do was to tell the communities involved they didn't tell the local communities, the local councils, the mayors, the state MPs. Um, that they simply left them all out of the picture. They didn't consider they needed to know, to be involved, to have a say, to be included, to be properly engaged. And that was directly contrary to key advice from the federal government's own Nuclear Safety Committee uh, as part of the regulator, APANZA, that said over t uh, in uh, November two years ago that it's essential, essential to engage the communities along the transport routes and that it was essential to be transparent in regarding future decisions. So a decision to site a nuclear waste storage in South Australia has, brings as a core requirement a decision to take to requisition the use of a South Australian port to bring in waste. And that there are a number of proposed nuclear, irradiated nuclear waste shipments intended to be brought into South Australia. Um, two such shipments are intended within the first two years of operation of the store, whether the store is at Kimber or Hawker or somewhere else. One of those shipments is intended to come from the UK, where Australia has previously sent uh, Lucas Heights nuclear fuel waste to the UK for reprocessing. A second shipment in the first two years is to come from Lucas Heights itself, where uh, Lucas Heights has received back reprocessed waste from France as part of a contract for waste that Australia earlier sent over. That, that, that would be the first two shipments to South Australia. A third shipment is, would come from France, um, in regard to reprocessed nuclear waste that was only sent out in July of this year from Lucas Heights, went through Port Kembla and it went out to France. That's, that, that makes up the first three. But there's then a further 40 years of intended nuclear waste production at, at ANSTO at the Lucas Heights reactor. And there's a very high degree of uncertainty as to about how that waste will be managed. The federal government tell you that they will rely solely and completely and for decades to come on continued French reprocessing as an option. The France is the last operator of a commercial reprocessing in the world. For lots of good reasons, that has been shut down around the world. The UK used to do so until recently, and for reasons outside of their control, they're no longer capable of commercially doing so. So it's quite likely that French reprocessing won't last. Whether it lasts three or five years, it might well do. It might not last 10, 20, 30, 40 years that the federal government is relying on and assuming in the information they build in to, to tell community or to not tell community what they need to know. So it's very likely that within a foreseeable time, Australia will have to manage its own nuclear fuel waste from Lucas Heights uh, with, entirely within Australia within our own means and it may well be that they directly ship that waste to wherever the store is uh, on a preferred schedule of every five to eight years for the next 40 years. So really if you buy into their, their plans you buy into everything that comes and thereafter in their plans. 
And so I had opportunity, uh, and, and there is a, a briefer on the matter available out of the table, I had opportunity to put together a two-pager on the nuclear ports issue to send it around to local councils and local state MPs and mayors and local media, and that became a lead story in regional media, regional media in SA just recently. And those local communities were appalled that they hadn't been included, engaged or consulted in any way. They were appalled that they weren't given a say, that the mayor of Port Perry was doing a lot of ABC radio saying, look, the council was blindsided by these federal government uh, announcements and proposals. That the mayor in uh, Wyala was saying, well, look, we, we need assurances about safety. We're not just accepting, the mayor was saying, we're not just going to accept this proposal for our city state of, of Wyala. It may well be that, um, that the Commonwealth find that through being so poor in engagement and the essential engagement, essentially ignoring that essential engagement of core required regional communities that are involved in their plans, that they really have made much more of a problem for themselves because transparency and democracy can well win out in the end, just as it has against four of the five nuclear waste storage agendas that has faced Australia so far in the last 20 years. If we, if we have a little look at um, some of the waste they intend to bring, the current inventory of intermediate-level waste that require radiation shielding, there's recently reported to be about 1,770 cubic metres, and 95% of that by volume comes from the federal government. 95%. The states are said to hold somewhere around... States and territories combined, um, universities, private industry hold about 100 cubic metres, about 5%. To bring that waste into South Australia would involve according to the recent federal government report, would involve 100 B-double truck shipments in the first four years. And about 90 of those truck shipments would come out of the Lucas Heights reactor site to South Australia. But it's not, it's not trying to manage an existing problem, it's trying to double the waste inventory. The dump, the store, will facilitate a doubling of Australia's waste. So over the period of the federal government planning, they would be looking to add... Uh, reported there some 1,960 additional cubic metres of intermediate-level waste that require isolation for 10,000 years. They would produce it much more happily on the basis that they had a place to dump it. And they will increase and extend the production of those long-lived waste that will, will obligate every generation to isolate it for the next 10,000 years if they can get away with the store site in South Australia. And of that additional, of that future intermediate-level waste... 95% of it would come directly from ANSTO. And when we look at how little, uh, in, in a relative sense, how little state and territory waste is involved, over the cumulative plan, not just the existing waste, but the, the, over the total plan, only 3% of that intermediate-level waste material would come from states and territories and universities and private industry. So you need to be an active and engaged community. You need to support each other. You need to build alliances, uh, increase the media profile of the campaign, and you need to be stoic to the extent that these things do go on long, but in general, you always win. Thanks. That was environmental campaigner David Noonan. Thanks to him, JD Mittman and Marilyn Fairskype, who are featured on today's show, and to all the other speakers who participated in the Black Mist Burnt Country Symposium. Thanks also to Kim Mavramatis for providing some of the audio. The next instalment of the touring exhibition Black Mist Burnt Country is on display at the National Museum of Australia in Canberra from August 24th to the 18th of November this year. You can find out more at blackmistburntcountry.com.au. Thanks for listening to the Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this program at 3cr.org.au slash radioactive. 
If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. The Radioactive Show was produced for 3CR on Ghana and Wurundjeri land. It is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of Friends of the Earth's Nuclear Free Collective. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues.